Father in heaven, surely you've given us a high and holy calling. And we thank you for privileging us with this opportunity to live in the last days. Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful in calling your people out of this world and inviting them to the city in heaven, the new Jerusalem, where we will all dwell in peace and harmony. May Jesus be lifted up. We thank you for being here as you promised. We ask these things in his name. Amen. How many of you have heard of the Waldensians? Okay, almost everyone has heard of the Waldensians. The Waldensians were a group of Christians, and they were heavily persecuted. This was in the time when the Roman Catholic Church was spreading throughout Europe, and they would go into cities and towns, and they would conquer the city or town, and they would ask everyone, do you want to accept the Roman Catholic faith? And if you did, then there was peace, and if you did not, then you would be destroyed. And so the Waldensians were heavily persecuted because early on they had the Bible translated in their own language, which was very rare back in this time. This is in the first few centuries. And they had the Bible in their own language. So when these Catholic priests came in and they were telling them about their faith, they saw there were some discrepancies. They said, no, we cannot agree with some of those things. And so they were heavily persecuted. Well, after a while, the persecution got so intense that the Waldensians split. Some of them started, they said, okay, we'll convert. And others said there's no way. And so those who said no way were continued, they were tortured, persecuted, they fled to the Alps in Italy. And they basically carved out a living in the countryside there. They built houses from the rocks on the mountainside, they built schools, colleges, and this is where they lived, up in the Alps of northern Italy. Now my wife and I had the opportunity a couple years ago to go on this tour of Europe. It was called the Great Controversy Tour. And we got to go to all these different sites of the Protestant Reformation, and by far the coolest was the Alps where the Waldensians lived. And so we took this trip there, and uh, this is a picture of the college. Now the Waldensians didn't have this knowledge and take it up into the mountains to keep it to themselves. They built this little college, and this is a picture of it here, you read about this in the Great Controversy, made from the rocks on the mountains. And this is where they would go, and they would study the Bible and these things so that they could go as missionaries to the rest of the world throughout Europe. This is their classroom. It was basically a little hole in the rock, a huge rock table, and there would have been a Bible there in the center of the table. And when the Waldensians signed up to be missionaries, they were basically signing their death warrant because that's how persecuted they were. And they would sign up to go under what was called a barb. That was the Waldensian word for uncle. And this would be like their mentor that would teach them how to execute missionary work in a successful way. It was very interesting the way that the Waldensians went about their mission work. We read about it in the Great Controversy here on page 71. It says, To have made known the object of their mission would have ensured its defeat. Therefore, they carefully concealed their real character. Every minister possessed a knowledge of some trade or profession, and the missionaries prosecuted their work under cover of a secular calling. Usually they chose that of merchant or peddler. They carried silks, jewelry, and other articles at that time not easily purchasable, save at distant marts, and they were welcomed as merchants where they would have been spurned as missionaries. All the while their hearts were uplifted to God for wisdom to present a treasure more precious than gold or gems. They secretly carried about with them copies of the Bible in whole or in part. And whenever an opportunity was presented, they called the attention of their customers to these manuscripts. 
Often an interest to read God's word was thus awakened, and some portion was gladly left with those who desired to receive it. Can you imagine if Seventh-day Adventists today went as a rare, expensive jewelry salesman to the cities? We would think that you had lost it, right? Unsuccessful form of evangelism, that's not what you should be doing. But that's what the Waldensians did. They found this rare jewelry, and they would take it into cities. Now their clothes, they had this, this Bible in their own language, and so it was very precious to them. They would stay up late copying these scriptures, and they would sew it into different parts of their clothes. Like we have pockets here that you can see. But they would hide it in their clothing so that if they were found, you couldn't find the scriptures in them. You can imagine how long it would take to copy something like that. That would be very precious to you. And so as they're selling this jewelry, then they would look for an opportunity if an interest was aroused in spiritual things, and they would share that scripture with these people they were selling to, and they would take that scripture and they would move on. Now, if they were caught, they were basically killed. So they had to be very careful about this. And the coolest thing, one of the coolest things we saw on the whole trip was this. This on the left is a little pouch, and inside of it you can see is a ring. And on the top of the ring is a box. And the inscription there in the museum in the Waldensian Mountains says it's a ring containing a miniature version of the book of Psalms on parchment. That little piece of paper right there is the book of Psalms written out. It's so small that the ink was, and it was written with a hair follicle, that they dipped in ink and they wrote out a, uh, what does it say, a miniature version of the book of Psalms on that parchment. And this is the type of thing that they would do. They would sell this jewelry and it would have these little pieces of scriptures hidden inside of it. Just incredible. And so the legend is that this belonged to John Calvin, uh, but it's there in the museum. And so this is the type of work that the Waldensians were involved in. Now in the Great Controversy, this is a side note, it says that the Waldensians kept the Sabbath. If you go to the Waldensian village now, they'll say, no, we never kept the Sabbath. Waldensians don't keep the Sabbath. We've always kept Sunday. Until my wife and I were there two years ago, the first time an elder, a Waldensian elder, took us around, and he said, we're just starting to, to discover that the Waldensians used to keep the Sabbath, validating the great controversy. And so they're starting to study these things out and see that what Mrs. White wrote about, you know, 100 years ago was true. And so it's fascinating the way that the Waldensians would take and they would share scripture with people in this secretive manner. Now we, fortunately, have some liberties in this country where we don't have to go to those extremes. I've been a missionary overseas, and when I left, I didn't think that I was signing up to die. And when we share scripture with someone, we're not looking around you know, behind us. Is that okay? And this is the type of thing that the Waldensians dealt with. But today we've been granted some freedoms, and we want to take advantage of them. And there's a passage in Deuteronomy 28 that I want to read. If you have your Bibles, you can read it there with me. It's in Deuteronomy 28. This is the chapter on the blessings and cursings that Moses spoke to the children of Israel. And it's fascinating here in Deuteronomy 28 what the Lord says, how he says that he will bless his people. And we'll just start in verse 1. And it says in Deuteronomy 28.1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God shall set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Now he starts listing the blessings. Blessed shall you be where? In the city. The first blessing. Blessed shall you be in the field. That's your crops, your agriculture. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, 
and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shall thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shall thou be when thou goest out. We'll skip down to verse 13. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. So God says, I want to make you the head and not the tail. That's the leader. And so when I think of this passage, I think of a dog sled. And one of my favorite quotes is the lead changes only, or the view changes only for the lead dog. You think about all these dogs running in the sled, and you got some in the front. All the ones in the back are just looking at the back end of the dog in front of them. The view changes only for the lead dog. God wants us to be the head and not the tail. And he's given us a formula found all throughout the spirit of prophecy that will make us the head in this world. And I want to show you today some specific applications of that formula, how a company in the world has taken this formula and they are being wildly successful with it. And right now we're trying to catch up when we should be the head. But before we do, I want to introduce this formula for evangelism in the cities through a video that was put together by the Beehive about urban evangelism that Elder Wilson gave at a talk just a few years ago. She wrote, during the past few years, the beehive in San Francisco has been indeed a busy one. Many lines of Christian effort have been carried forward by our brothers and sisters there. These included visiting the sick and destitute, finding homes for orphans and work for the unemployed, nursing the sick and teaching the truth from house to house, distributing literature and conducting classes on healthful living and the care of the sick. A school for the children has been conducted in the basement of the Laguna Street Meeting House. For a time, a working men's home and medical mission was maintained. On Marcus Street, near the city hall, there were treatment rooms operated as a branch of the St. Helena Sanitarium. In the same locality was a health food store. This is all quoting from Ellen White. Near the center of the city, not far from the call building, was conducted a vegetarian cafe, which was open six days in the week and entirely closed on the Sabbath. Along the waterfront, ship mission work was carried on. At various times, our ministers conducted meetings in large halls in the city. Thus, the warning message was given by many. We need a strategic plan under the guidance of the Holy Spirit for every city in every country in every division around the world that will produce this beehive
quote six testimonies? Uh, yeah, it's in multiple places. A welfare ministry has it. Uh, I think it's page 111 and 112. So, so the quote was welfare ministry 111 and 112. So I went on uh, Google, and you can find all the uh, actual addresses of where these places were in San Francisco now. And the restaurant that they had on Market Street is where the Four Seasons Hotel is today in San Francisco. So you can see that we had the prime properties uh, of the cities 100 years ago. Much of this was destroyed back in the earthquake then by the fire, and it was never rebuilt. And so this is really the only place where we've seen all of these different components of urban evangelism come together, and we have not been able to duplicate it since. And so just to summarize, basically we have this model that Jared was touching on where we work the cities from what we would call an outpost or somewhere out in the country to get into the cities. So in the outposts, we would have a farm connected with what we would call today a health resort. They call it a lifestyle center, sanitarium, something like that. Uh, and then some type of educational component where people could be trained to continue to replicate this model. And so this would be outside of the city. I'll tell you that my wife and I live about 45 minutes outside of Atlanta. Uh, we live in Gwinnett County, but we're renting a place with five acres and it feels like we're out in the middle of nowhere. It's amazing. And uh, it's very cheap. It can be done, living outside of the city and commuting in. 45 minutes isn't bad. Most people drive that to work uh, all the time. So it's very doable to live outside of the city. And then to go inside the city, she says we should start centers of influence, which could be in the form of a restaurant, a cafe, a health food store, a co-op, or some type of lifestyle-based health clinics. And if you look at mainstream society, kind of this cool, trendy thing that Jared was talking about now where we all kind of want to be in the cities, this is where it's at. Local produce, we're into lifestyle medicine, being fit, exercising, CrossFit, right? These extreme workouts that people are doing to get in shape. And people want to know where their food comes from. They want to know that it's local. They want to know it's organic. They want to go to these retreats out in the country where these health resorts where they can get well for a week, two weeks at a time. And they'll spend a fortune doing it. These places are booked up all around the world who do these type of things. And we're going to get into that more in a little bit. But you can see how they all work together. Ms. Weiss said the ABC of educational studies is what? A knowledge of? Agriculture. Okay? Agriculture, you need to support a health resort because those people who are coming are going to want to eat. You need it to support students out of school. You need it to support a cafe, a health food store. If you could grow all of that food, You'll be making money on both ends, right? <laughs> selling to your own store, your store selling it to the people. You can see somebody comes into your cafe. They're like, man, my doctor just put me on five different types of medication. He says I'm about to die. What do I do? I need help. And these are actual stories where you talk to people who have this experience. And they start eating your food. They start seeing that you're making a difference. And you say, hey, you can eat this food. But what you really need is you need to go to our health resort for three, five, seven days, and you're really going to get better. They're going to teach you how to live, how to exercise. They're going to put you on a plan for your lifestyle. And that's what people are doing of the world, and they're being wildly successful. And Seventh-day Adventists have kind of dropped the ball on this, and we're trying to pick it back up and get to where we're the head once more. Amen. So there's a company that's doing all these things, like I said, and I, for one, am provoked to like extreme jealousy when I walk in this door. And you guys are going to know it. And uh, I'm going to show a little video here of it. First century, a chain that decides to store price men by the density of college graduates within a 16 minute drive. But fans and foes of Whole Foods might be surprised by the man who built a grocery empire 
out of a little health food store and a radical idea. Here's my co-anchor, Bill Weir. If you have never been inside a Whole Foods, never understood the cult-like devotion of its customers, well, we should probably start with the colors. The place just looks delicious. If you squint, the produce department resembles an edible Monet. And this is not an accident. In fact, the Whole Foods aesthetic starts long before they put a cute sign over a perfect stack of rainbow chard. You run calcium in, on all the cherry yeah, tomatoes right now? Tomatoes. It starts out here in the dirt. You know, we're, we're specifically growing this for Whole Foods. You guys are looking for better color. It's absolutely beautiful. It's going to be great in our stores. Bob is a Whole Foods field and quality inspector. Small gray bugs down in the crown. While Harvey is a Whole Foods forager. So sweet. They are kind of like major league scouts, but instead of driving to random ball fields looking for pitchers, they hit farm fields and farmers markets in search of the crunchiest green pepper or a nice Peruvian chocolate cashew milk. Wow. Harvey scours foodie blogs and drives hundreds of miles per week. Um, this is sesame going on. In Today, he's looking for up and coming bagel artisans or socially responsible pie makers who've gone organic. What's in the water? Like, right. what's in the food we're eating? What's in the air? Um, yeah. What's in the air? Pollution, mm -hmm. pesticide, chemicals. Follow them around for a bit, and you'll see that cost is a lot less important than ideals, like fair trade, no preservatives, and humanely treated livestock. Values which attract the kind of person willing to pay eight bucks a pound for granola. But here's the interesting part. While there may be a lot of so-called liberal elites proudly reading the labels at Whole Foods, they would have a tough time labeling the man who created Whole Foods, John Mackey. I'm an individualist. I'm not really a conformist, which gets people mad at you sometimes because they you don't quite live up to their stereotypes. For example, he spent some of his long-haired youth living in a vegetarian co-op, but now calls Obamacare fascism. He is a health-conscious vegan. John Mackey started Whole Foods. He was uh, living in his own vegetarian co-op. And he started it. A big flood came through Texas. It wiped it out. Uh, but he'd been living there for two years with his girlfriend. He was basically showering out of the dishwasher. And that's how Whole Foods got started. You know, he had quite a bit of hard work. It didn't just come to him. And uh, yet he's a vegan. He's health conscious. You heard the cult-like devotion of people who go to Whole Foods. We know that's true. Um, and this is what they're doing with our message, right? All these farms should be Seventh-day Adventist farms. These should be schools that these guys are going to because we have the most beautiful produce, we have the best tasting produce, and we're not doing it, right? They're going to the world. And I, I'm just so provoked to jealousy when I walk in there because everything is beautiful. And I imagine the Garden of Eden was so beautiful. And this place looks like the Garden of Eden with vegetables in bins. <laughs> and we want, we want to get back there. And, uh, and so I think it's interesting that sometimes we have this perception of vegetarianism, of health food stores, of, oh, we need to learn to grow our old food. Like, that's old-fashioned. Like, that might have worked 100 years ago, right? Like, mechanical trades, that's not really in anymore. And it's huge right now in urban areas. This is the trendy, cool thing to do, to grow your own food, to source it locally. And veganism is huge. Among, among wealthy, influential people. Like, you have to have some amount of education, right, to know that you need to eat healthy. And uh, so this guy is a vegan. Anybody watch Shark Tank, this investor show sometimes? You notice Damon John, the founder of FUBU, he, somebody was giving him some food. He's like, I can't invest in this. He's like, my family's vegan. My kids eat vegan. 
Uh, I just couldn't support it. And so this is huge, mainstream. And so I want us to see by the end of the day that the message that God gave us through Ellen White is a total mainstream message specifically for this time in Earth's history, that God has set us up to be the head and not the tail. And since we haven't taken hold of it, the people of the world are, which is an absolute shame. And then Whole Foods is doing this, which is just a smack in the face. It's called Salud, which is the Spanish word for health. And they have these cooking classes that they set up in a separate room in their grocery stores. And you can see it's beautifully set up with display tables, TV monitors, and they cook. And they'll charge like 50, 80 bucks a head to come in there and learn how to cook a meal. Sold out. Sold out, everyone, like in advance. You have to book in advance. And there's certain of them, they'll do all kinds of different programs there. They'll do yoga classes. Uh, they'll do Nutrition 101. They'll take people on uh, food labeling or food reading of the labels through the store where they'll show you what you should buy, what you should be aware of, what you need to put together in your diet. You can go learn what you should pack for your kids at lunch. You can go on a date night with your wife or your husband. You can take them there and they'll teach you how to cook together. Uh, they'll take you and teach you how to cook from France and Italy and all over the world. And it's just amazing the things that they're doing uh, through this Salude cooking class. So we're going to talk more about that. Uh, here's some more of the classes there. Knife skills, kids cooking camps in the summer. They'll do, run four or five day camps out of these cooking schools uh, where kids can come during the day and they learn how to cook uh, with their families at home in a healthy way. Basically Whole Foods was started on healthy living, on healthy eating, and they've run all these separate programs off of that. Now, at your churches, what are some of the outreach programs that your church is doing right now? Someone could just raise your hand. I'll repeat what you say so they can hear it on Audioverse. Someone want to volunteer an outreach program at your church? Prison ministry. Okay, prison ministry. Excellent. Anyone else? Random acts of kindness and mowing lawns. Okay. Random acts of kindness, mowing lawns. Health fairs slash Daniel challenges. Okay, health fairs, Daniel challenges. Okay, going to the nursing home, singing, doing Bible studies. Exercise programs. Okay, exercise programs. Feed, a the homeless. feed the homeless. A lot of the programs that I've been to in churches recently, we've been going door to door, uh, passing out flyers, things like that. I've gone recently downtown Atlanta to feed the homeless. Nursing homes, singing, things like that. And all these things are excellent things that we should be doing. Amen? Amen. But I want to show you something from the Spirit of Prophecy that blew me away when I read it. In Christ Object Lessons, page 230, it says, Those who belong to the higher ranks of society are to be sought out with tender affection and brotherly regard. Men in business life, in high positions of trust, men with large inventive faculties and scientific insight, men of genius, teachers of the gospel whose minds have not been called to the special truths for this time, these should be the first to hear the call. To them, the invitation must be given. So I've entitled this slide, The Rich Shall Be First. Why would we want to give the gospel to the rich first? Oftentimes in our churches, everything that we're doing is geared towards reaching poor people, which is fine. Did Jesus reach out to poor people? Yeah. Amen. So then why does Mrs. White say the rich, the wealthy, the influential, the men of inventive faculties and scientific insight should be the first to hear the call? It's harder for them to get to heaven. They might need more time. Yeah. It costs us $200 a week to do prison ministry. Okay, so it's expensive. Jesus said the poor you'll always have with you, so maybe that's expensive, constantly reaching out to them. 
Their sphere of influence. That's exactly right. Their sphere of influence. Do you want to add something? That's right, their sphere of influence. Basically, you reach the people at the top, they use all that wealth, all that influence, all that power, all that inventive insight, scientific brain, and they say, okay, guys, I'm in. Let's use everything I got, and let's put it into the work. And then it goes so much faster, right? The Lord has put it in our power, in connection with him, to hasten the second coming, which is just a mind-blowing thought, if you think about it, that we can get off this planet faster by what you and I do every day. And God says the first to hear the call, you should go after the wealthy and influential. And so many of our churches, we're looking at the bottom of the pyramid, which is fine. But how many more people could we reach if we went after the top first and then use all their influence? It would be like multiplying everything in our hands so we could reach more people faster. And this is the type of thing that Whole Foods is doing, to go back to them. They have programs like the Whole Loan Program, where they'll give money to local entrepreneurs They'll bring in their products to their store, they'll sell them, and they'll give them loans to get their small business started. They have a whole kids foundation where they will give grants to public schools to put in gardens in their school. They'll bring in salad bars uh, to the public school system so the kids have something healthy to eat for lunch. It's just incredible things. They have a microloan project that a friend of mine who works at Whole Foods, I think he's in Kenya right now, is going over there and they're looking for people to give microloans to in third world countries to help them start a living. All of these things that we're doing we're just not doing them with the same scope because we're not reaching out to those wealthy and influential and using their resources. We're picking up the same top few people, right? We go after the same people. We know those names. We need a little bit more money for this. We need a little bit more money for this. Instead of reaching some secular worldly businessman and then using his resources. That's what we should be doing according to the Spirit of Prophecy. Now, Jared and I uh, were in this Whole Foods in Boulder, and the Whole Foods in Boulder is like the Disneyland of Whole Foods. It's incredible. And we're in there, and we're walking through the store, and we look up, and there's this timeline of the health food history in Boulder, Colorado. And this is the picture we see. And this is about as clear as it was for us when we saw it. And it says, cereal blend, a substitute for coffee, manufactured by Colorado Sanitarium Food Company, Boulder, Colorado. And this was the first picture on the wall in this timeline of health foods uh, where the Disneyland of Whole Foods now is in Boulder, Colorado. And so Jared's like, sanitarium, there's only one group of people that uses that word. We know who made up that word, right? John Harvey Kellogg. So Jared you know, looks it up on his phone, and sure enough, Seventh-day Adventists were the first ones to bring health food to Boulder, Colorado. Now, there is no more Colorado sanitarium there, needless to say, but there is a big Disneyland Whole Foods, <laughs> and it was just another kick in the pants, right? Where are Seventh-day Adventists today? This is our message that they're taking. We're denying our message now. Unfortunately. And so we, we really got to become aware of this and see God has given us a plan for success and we need to take it and run with it. So now we've kind of talked about some things uh, that the world is doing, what we should be doing, and now I want to talk about what we are going to start doing in Atlanta. We're going to be opening a cold-pressed juice cafe called Supernatural Juice. Supernatural because everything's going to be organic. It's going to be all natural. It's going to be local as much as possible. And we want to open up a small cold-pressed juice cafe in the middle of the business district of Buckhead. So we're looking at a space in Atlanta that's very cheap rent, but in a good location in a high-rise where we can start servicing. P 
people working in the office like Fannie Mae, uh, you know, Wells Fargo, a lot of investment banks, things like that, where these people are going to be walking by every day, and people are looking for health-conscious decisions. These wealthy men are looking for that. Uh, there was a new or documentary came out a few years ago called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. How many of you see, saw this documentary? basically follows an Australian guy. He's uh, 100 pounds overweight. He has an autoimmune disease, and he's very sick. Basically, he got one foot in the grave, and he goes on this cross-country tour across the United States, and he does nothing but drink juice for 60 days. And he made this documentary about it, and about 8 million people watched this video. And since this video came out, juicing has kind of exploded in the mainstream. Now, we've been juicing for a long time, in our, for a long time in our lifestyle centers and sanitariums, right? We know that that's good for you. Condensed, nutrient-dense, high-density produce is good for you. That's the original diet God gave to Adam and Eve. We just haven't taken it and packaged it in a way that the mainstream is like, hey, I need some of that, where media has done that. And so I have a short video here on kind of the juice craze right now in the world. your body and help you lose weight as well. It's really such a big business that Starbucks and Jamba Juice are among companies looking to get a piece of this booming segment. Jane Wells is in Los Angeles with more. Jane. Michelle, Mother Nature in a glass. <laughs> uh, beverage uh, Industry Magazine predicts the fruit juice, smoothie, and yogurt drink market will grow 4% a year through 2015 to top a billion dollars. Starbucks has bought Evolution Fresh to try to do for juices what it's done for coffee. Jamba Juice has launched Fresh, a fresh juice initiative, say that five times, with new blended juice drinks, minus the sherbet. And taking Wall Street by storm, Blueprint Cleanse, a juice cleansing program that costs $65 a day and is now selling in Whole Foods. Co-founder Erica Huss says most of its clients are women, but a lot of men are using it in places like, yes, Goldman Sachs. We do tend to see men specifically in, you know, in, the, in the banking groups. Um, participate in a cleanse as a group. I think there's kind of a sense of, you know, brotherhood, camaraderie, competition, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we definitely see significant numbers of groups of dudes drinking juice together. And dudes in La La Land, too. Places like Press Juicery deliver your organic cold-pressed cleanse right to your door. $48 a day plus delivery, or you can buy one bottle for $6.50. Yes, cleansing is expensive, and it's tough. At my Buddhist center, people were doing it just to, like, be healthy, and so I tried it, but I only lasted three days because I, the smells of food would take over and I got, like, faint. Sometimes people have a hard time wrapping their heads around, well, it's just juice. Why is it $6.50? Yes, it's just juice, but we're talking about unpasteurized juice. There's no additives. There's no preservatives. We've just pressed it this morning. And, of course, celebrities naturally are going natural. Selma Hayek started Cooler Cleanse four years ago. Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop.com is promoting the clean program. But, guys, some doctors say be careful. Don't overdo this. And, by the way, there is a lot of sugar in juice. That, that's the vernacular, right? Cleanse. I'm doing a cleanse. I, I hear yes, some, a lot I'm of yoga women say this. How does it taste, Jane? Oh, wow. Well, well, it's good, better huh? than a bacon milkshake. <laughs> All right. Jane Wells, the inevitable. So we can see this is something that the wealthy, influential class of society is interested, right? Goldman Sachs is not like your local bank down the street. And this is something that these people are highly into. 
I just heard a recent statistic, one out of three people in the United States will get cancer and one out of four will die from it. It's about to replace heart disease as the, ne as the, next, as the biggest killer in the United States. I believe Dr. Tim Riesenberger said that uh, recently. And we know that loading the body with nutrient-dense foods is good for people who are sick, right? And so I don't think this is just a fad. I think as people continue to get more and more sick and they see that their food supply being deteriorated, that they're going to be looking for answers for places like this. We've been doing this for a long time in our lifestyle centers, and we know it's good for them. And so we want to put it in a way that's attractive to mainstream people where we put it right in the center of their lives where they can get easy access to it. Now, how do you do ministry at a juice cafe, though? A lot of these places do delivery, and they'll go to a place like a business office, and they'll do a lunch and learn where they come in with juice, they supply the office, and then they'll give a 30, 45-minute presentation on detoxing, on how drinking this juice will make your blood flow better, it'll clean your system out, make you smarter, more productive at work, and things like that. And then we can hopefully generate these conversations where we can show people the relationship between physical and spiritual health because they are interconnected. All of these guys are connecting and juicing to spiritual health. It's just things like yoga and Buddhism and all this new age stuff that we don't subscribe to. And so if we can share with them the truth that will give them peace that nothing else can offer them, uh, surely we have a formula for success, amen? And so that's what we want to do is start a small one of these uh, where we can manufacture the juice and then we can put off little plants in different parts of the city where we can just put these in the center where people are walking in other offices where we can come in contact with more and more people. And then eventually we'd love to connect this with a health resort outside the city where we could send people for three, five, seven, ten days and say, you need to go detox out here where we have presentations on spiritual health, where we have uh, vegan chefs on staff, where we have hydrotherapy, saunas, things like that, that we know are good for the body and detoxing it from all the pollutants all around us. And so you can see that there's just a huge interconnected web of ministries that can happen when we take up these principles in the spirit of prophecy. What if we had schools that taught entrepreneurship where we could teach people how to go out and start these businesses, how to do ministry from your, from your work like the Waldenses. That was their purpose. It wasn't a secondary purpose that I'm going to make, I'm going to do ministry, I'm going to convert souls while I'm making money. It was I'm going to convert souls and the bonus is I'm going to support myself while I'm doing it. Oftentimes we have that backwards. And so that's what we want to do. We want this to be a self-supporting endeavor uh, that can put missions on a stable ground. And we feel like this is a way that we can just make a start. Now, it would be amazing if we could connect this to a church plant where we could have not like a regular church with pews and, uh, you know, a sign out front, but in a retail setting where maybe the front of the church was like a little walk-up juice cafe and the back was like a salute where we had cooking classes going on and nutrition lectures and if somebody wanted to come exercise there, different things like that. Now, I'm not talking about where you come in gym shorts and a T-shirt on Sabbath morning. I'm talking about suit and tie, you know, for that time because that's church but where it was in, in, a, in an open retail type setting where people would be walking by all the time, they would get to know us through the programs throughout the week, and they would want to say, hey, I want what you guys have in there. That looks amazing. I believe it's a recipe for success because Ellen White outlined it, and clearly she was right about so many other things, and uh, we can see the people of the world taking it. So where do you see yourself fitting in? Maybe it's not in a ministry in Atlanta. Maybe it's here in Chattanooga. Maybe it's in New York or L.A. or Tokyo or Paris. Maybe you speak a different language and you want to go back and do this where you are. 
you think about everything that's involved in starting a business. You have to come up with logos. You have to make a website. You have to make promotional videos. You need people to present on these things. You need people to cook. All of these type of people, agriculture, farmers, to, make, to grow the food, educators to start schools. Surely there's a place in here for you, for every one of us, where we can find how God would use me to reach people in the secular society. Because that's where people are, right? They're in the cities. And we need to come in contact with them. How would God use my skills and my talent to use people? Whatever club you got in the bag to borrow you know, the allegory, swing it. And so I would just encourage you to seek the Lord and find out how he would use you. You know, all through the Bible, we had this example this morning that Jared brought up of God bringing Joseph in contact with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time. And then we have him bringing Daniel in contact with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world at that time. We have John the Baptist coming in contact with Herod at, at that time. We have Paul coming in contact with Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire. God wants to use Seventh-day Adventists. He wants us to, to bring us in contact with the leading men of this world because we have a message for them. God died for those men. And we might get angry at the things that they do and frustrated at what we see on TV, but God died for them and he loves them just like he loves you and I. And we have to go in and reach those people. Ellen White, when she was going around uh, Australia looking for a place for their school, they found this spot and she said, everything about this space is perfect, except it's not really close to any thoroughfares of travel. It's not next to like a really good city. So think about that. Think about what Jared said this morning. When you're thinking about moving out into the country, what you should do. Am I close to people where I can be used effectively as a minister of the gospel? Or am I going to be out here doing my own thing, having my own Bible study, making me holy at home? Because that's never going to work, right? We're too selfish. We've got to get out and serve other people. So I want to share this last quote here from Manuscript 7. And it says, often we have been told that our cities are to hear the message, but how slow we are to heed the instruction. I saw one with a capital O. That must mean that it's who? Jesus. Jesus. It says, I saw one standing on a high platform with arms extended. He turned and pointed in every direction, saying, a world perishing in ignorance of God's holy law and Seventh-day Adventists are asleep. Who said that? Jesus. The Lord is pleading for laborers. For there is a great work to be done. There are conversions to be made that will add to the church such as shall be saved. Men and women in the highways and byways are to be reached. We are far behind in following the light God has given regarding the working of our large cities. The time is coming when laws will be framed that will close doors now open to the message. We need to arouse to earnest effort now while the angels of God are waiting to give their wonderful aid to all who will labor to arouse the consciences of men and women regarding the righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. How many of you want to work with angels? That would be a blessing, wouldn't it? It says right there that they are waiting. Angels are waiting on you to go forward at God's command. It's not presumption if God said to do it, right? God said, go warn my people in the cities. And so the best thing we can do is take him at his word and go do it. So we'll just close with prayer, and then we can have a time of uh, question and answer. If you guys have any questions about this, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being patient with us. We thank you that you have brought us step by step out of this world, and you have called us your people. And Lord, we want to go back now and call your people out of this world as you have done for us. We pray that you'd use each one in here to save a soul who might win one more and another and another, and your coming might be hastened. 
show us all where we fit into this grand plan of reaching people in urban areas and drawing them out to the country where you can teach them more about your character. Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful unto death. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.